triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem for that final Passover, but also Palm Sunday is significant because it kicks off what we call Passion Week, which was the last week that Jesus spent alive on the earth. Now, in the scriptural narrative, all able-bodied Jews are traveling back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so when Jesus enters Jerusalem, it is among a parade of pilgrims to an exuberant celebration. And then during that week, during Passion Week, there are many other significant milestones like the Last Supper, like the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' arrest there, his trial and humiliation before Caiaphas and Pilate, and then his crucifixion on the cross. But as I was thinking about Palm Sunday and what I would bring for you today, it, it reminded me again that there is a great danger for us in familiarity. And what I mean is, We've heard this story over and over and over so many times, it's easy for us to get lost in the repetition. So I want us to really think this morning about what the Word says, and like the worship team sang, what Jesus actually did for us. Now there are some really cool stories around Passion Week, and there's some really interesting characters. I was thinking there are some kind of main highlight characters like Caiaphas and like Herod and several of the disciples. Peter, who famously defended Jesus in the garden and just a few hours later denied him in the courtyard at Caiaphas' house. King Herod. Um, the other disciple, John, who was the only one to stay with Jesus all the way through the crucifixion. And then there were several women disciples. And the reason I tell you this story is because I don't know how to prepare for an encounter like that. I don't know how to get ready for a crisis like that. I walked into this group of people that were shocked and angry and confused and hurt, and I just didn't know what to say. In John chapter 18, we see a similar situation, this unfolding drama where Jesus and his disciples are staying at Bethany, which is just a few miles east of Jerusalem, probably at the home of Lazarus, whom he just raised from the dead, and they were going back and forth to the temple every day during Passion Week. And as Jesus entered, he spent the week there teaching when he wasn't kicking over tables. He was teaching, and then at the end of the week, he celebrated that final Passover meal with his disciples, what we call the Last Supper. He struggled with his father over his fate in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was betrayed by Jesus and arrested. And then that terrible night where he was interrogated and accused and condemned by the very Jews that he came to save. We're going to pick up the story in John chapter 18, verse 28. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? 
We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. Now, a little backstory here. Pilate, who was the governor of Judea, his military title was prefect, actually lived in Caesarea, which is over on the coast. In fact, the word in the Greek Pontius means of the sea. But when he came to Jerusalem to govern, he stayed in something called the Praetorium Antonio, which has actually been excavated, and you can see this today. It was a large fortress built adjacent to the temple and actually looked over into the temple grounds. Now, there, we learn a lot about Pilate from this passage, but the first thing I want you to see is that he went out to them, which is fascinating to me. Now, before we get to that, I see another real irony here. Did you notice as I was reading that passage? Here are a group of Jewish elders, the, the cream of the crop of the Jewish religious world. They had just spent the night terrorizing another human being, treating him worse than an animal. And forget just for a second about the legal implications and messiahship and all that. These are just men who had behaved horribly. And now we see in verse 28, they refused to enter a Gentile's residence because it would defile them. Is that strange to you? Okay, so the Bible says that they get to the palace very early in the morning. Pilate sets aside his coffee and newspaper, and with a sigh, he goes out to them. The most powerful man in Jerusalem goes out to them and asks, verse 29, what's your charge against this man? And the Jewish leaders rolled their eyes and didn't even respond to his question. They just said, if he weren't a criminal, he wouldn't have come to you. Now, there's something going on here we don't understand. This makes me curious. So the Bible says that Pilate takes Jesus inside the praetorium and begins to interrogate him. This is verse 33 of John 18. And Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Now, this is a loaded question, and Jesus sees it coming a mile away. Because if Jesus says, I'm a political king, then Pilate's got a problem because he's a rebel against Rome. But if he's a messianic king, according to the Jews, then Pilate doesn't have a problem at all. Going on, am I a Jew, Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Now, we know that this is a rhetorical question because Pilate has no interest in the truth whatsoever. In fact, he fails to recognize that the truth is standing right in front of him in bodily form. So then Pilate went out again to the people and told them he's not guilty of any crime. 
So it seems that Pilate has decided to do the right thing. But here's the second issue I have with Pilate in this story. He has Jesus flogged. Going on, chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priest and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him! Pilate said, I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. Okay, a little more context here. A Roman flogging or scourging was required to anybody sentenced to die by crucifixion. And the purpose of the scourging was to bring the condemned criminal right up to the point of death so the crucifixion wouldn't take very long. So Jesus is literally beaten within an inch of his life. And beyond that, the soldiers took upon themselves to mock him relentlessly. So when, when Jesus came back out, when, when Pilate brought Jesus out, he was in unspeakable condition. Here's my question. If Pilate really thinks that Jesus is innocent, why have him flogged? I can't imagine the pressure of being a Roman official in one of the outlying provinces because this guy's job was hanging by a thread. He could be replaced or even killed at the whim of the emperor whom he never saw and was hundreds of miles away. And in fact, if a new emperor came in, he would probably lose his job anyway. So he was always doing everything he could to maintain status quo because one of the jobs of a Roman official in an occupied country was to maintain the peace, maintain law and order. Well, Pilate's job was especially hard because the Jews had been given permission to govern themselves by their law. And the Jewish leaders knew that Pilate could afford no kind of unrest in Judea. So the flogging of Jesus was Pilate's attempt to appease the Jews. And that's clear from verse 4 when he says, I'm going to bring him out now. But understand, I don't find him guilty at all. So then we have to ask, if Pilate really believes that Jesus is not guilty, why not just release him? because he desperately needed the approval of these Jewish leaders. So this is why we see Pilate bringing Jesus out, beaten within an inch of his life, mocked, clothed in robe, purple robe with a crown of thorns on his head, and said, here's the man. And Pilate's thinking, isn't this enough? Now, isn't this enough? But it wasn't, not by a long shot. Now, before we go to the next passage, there's a couple of things here that I just really can't get my minds around. I'm thinking about these Jewish leaders. Hadn't they read the scriptures? I mean, these are the sharpest minds, rabbinical minds in Judaism. Didn't they know what Isaiah said in the Old Testament? 
He was despised. The Messiah was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with in deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. How could the Jewish leaders be so blind? Well, how can we? And how could they be so intimidated by a bunch of religious hypocrites? Well, how could we? The second thing I find really incredible about this situation that Jesus could have stopped it at any moment. Now, when Jesus was in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, agonizing, in argument with his father about his fate. Please, Father, take this cup from me. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. But did he possibly imagine that it would come to this? We see Matthew chapter 26. He said to Peter, don't think I can't call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. So why didn't he? Why didn't he cry out for relief and escape? Well, it's in the very next verse, verse 54. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Now, folks, listen, we cannot miss the point here. Jesus was absolutely focused, laser focused on the Father's plan which from the time that Adam and Eve sinned and broke covenant with God, it was God's desire, it was God's heart, it was God's plan to redeem us. And he sent Jesus to do that. Jesus came and to fix our unfixable sin problem. Jesus came to reconcile us back to the Father. That was God's plan. And Jesus knew that. In fact, Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So how do you feel about that? How does that land on you? The third thing we learned about Pilate from this story is that he was afraid. This is verse 8 in John chapter 19. When Pilate heard this, he's talking about the Jewish leaders crying out for Jesus to be crucified. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, you'd have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him. But the Jewish leaders shouted, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. Verse 13, when they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. 
The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. Now, in our understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus, we place the lion's share of the blame on the Jews. And that's fair. But Pilate was far from innocent. When Pilate went out to the Jewish leaders at dawn, he had no idea what he was getting into. But as the day progressed, and as he heard from Jesus, the pressure began to increase. In fact, his wife even told him, have nothing to do with this innocent man. I've been tortured by nightmares about him. And now we see in his final examination of Jesus, Pilate asked three questions. The first one is, where'd you come from? And Jesus didn't respond at all. What's he going to say, heaven? Pilate's not listening anyway. So then Pilate asked him, why don't you talk to me? And in the Greek phrasing, it says, to me you do not speak? To me? In other words, don't you know who I am? Pilate said, everybody submits to me. Everybody responds to my questions, but you refuse to talk to me? And I got to thinking, this is really another way in which I relate to Pilate. Because sometimes when God won't respond to me, I said, what? You won't talk to me? You keep telling me I'm special. Every Sunday morning we sing about I'm a child of God. And you won't talk to me? Don't you know who I am? The third question Pilate asked is, don't you realize I have the power to release you or crucify you? Finally, the truth. Because all this time, really what Pilate's doing is trying to shift blame to avoid responsibility, to get out of this tight spot. And now Jesus gives it to him. Because he says, you have no power at all unless it's given to you from above. So Pilate goes out again and once again tries to justify his decision to release Jesus. And the Jews play their trump card. If you don't kill this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. And Pilate, being terrified, is forced to answer the critical question, what am I going to do with Jesus? And that's the question before us today. Because having heard the scriptural account of what Jesus went through, having come face to face with the sufferings of Christ on our behalf, now I have to answer the question and you have to answer the question, what am I going to do with Jesus? Honey, would you come to the piano, please? Now what am I trying to tell you? When Jesus died on the cross, he did everything that you needed him to do for your salvation. That's what he meant when he cried out, it is finished. There is nothing more that Jesus can do for you. Now it's all up to you. And I know that you say, yeah, Randy, I know I hear that every Easter. Well, I know that you know the story. And I know that you know who Jesus is. And I'm sure that you're reconciled with the fact that Jesus is God's son, sent to redeem the world. But I've got massive news for you today. Listen closely. Jesus did not just come to give you eternal life. Jesus also came to give you abundant life. And I want you to know that whatever it is you're looking for in this life, Jesus is better. 
You need to understand that you're not going to find the peace you're looking for in what you're chasing. And there are basically two groups of people I'm talking to today. And it's probably not very many of you, but there's two groups of people that I'm speaking to. Number one is the group of people that does not have a relationship with Jesus. And yes, I know that you know who he is, and you probably would say that you believe in God. But the truth is, if you're being really honest, you've decided to serve self rather than Jesus. You've decided to live your life according to what you want rather than what Jesus wants. And today the question is posed to you, what are you going to do with Jesus? And the second group of people I'm talking to are the ones that are kind of serving Jesus. And what I mean by that is that you have made a commitment to Jesus. You answered an altar call. You paid the sinner's prayer. And maybe there was a time when you were very, very close to Jesus. But now today, you've allowed things to distract you. And you've, you've gotten busy with making a living and raising a family or doing what you enjoy doing. And without even realizing it, you've gradually drifted away from that closeness, from the intimacy that Jesus has for you. And I'm just telling you, you're not going to find life to the full in this existence. The only time we ever find abundant life is in relationship with Jesus until we get to our eternal home. So I ask you the question as well, what are you going to do with Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, when I, when I see this graphic picture of the price that you paid for me, when I understand what it cost you to save me. I can't deal with it. Because you are so worthy and I am so unworthy. You never sinned. I'm nothing but sin. And this, this truth that you did what you did to save me to rescue me, to redeem me? How can I not give myself to you? How can I not live my life absolutely surrendered to you, flat out for you? And yet I do. And Jesus, when I come into this beautiful place on Sunday and I'm with these wonderful people, Following Jesus makes sense. Living my life according to your word makes sense. But on Tuesday when I'm facing deadlines, and on Wednesday when I'm exhausted, and on Thursday when I'm looking forward to the weekend, I realize that I let you slip out of my grasp. And I enthrone myself in my life. I dethrone you and enthrone me. And Jesus, I repent. I'm so sorry. I know that you've got a life for me that's spectacular beyond comprehension. And this morning again, I choose you.
I choose to live for you. I choose to go flat out for you. I choose to revoke the world. I choose to turn my back on the things that culture says are important. And I choose once again to follow you wholeheartedly. Receive me now in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed.